I think the most urgent priority now is how do we fight weapons of information warfare as societies that believe in freedom of expression. Winning does not mean that whatever your side is on dominates the discussion. Winning should be something different. I think winning should mean that we still have a healthy space in which public discourse can happen. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. When Russia invaded Ukraine a few weeks ago, something unexpected happened. There was widespread agreement, not just on what was happening, but that something needed to be done to stop it. Sanctions were instated, and countries that historically had been hesitant to get involved in foreign conflict, like Germany and Switzerland, lent their support. In the U.S., a Republican Party that often flirts with conspiracy theories and occasionally sympathizes with Putin almost uniformly denounced the invasion. And the big tech platforms, who have long resisted calls to tweak their algorithms to mitigate disinformation and polarization, did exactly that. Of course, none of this stopped the Russian propaganda machine. But on the whole, it seemed like our information ecosystem may not have been as broken as we'd previously thought. The truth might have been winning. But as is often the case with these kinds of tidy narratives, the story on the ground is much more complicated. The world looks different outside of English-language social media, where Russian propaganda may in fact be winning. And the information landscape looks drastically different within Russia, where many citizens aren't even aware the war is going on, or that sanctions have crippled their economy. And technology companies, while perhaps well-intentioned, may have actually made the problem worse by leaving Russia altogether. The other thing I've noticed from talking to colleagues around the world over the past couple of weeks is that the conversation in Europe feels very different than the one we're having here. So I want to speak to two people who are watching this issue closely to get a clearer picture of how the digital aspects of this conflict are playing out. We'll hear from Frederike Kalturner at Human Rights Watch. But first, Ben Scott is the executive director of Reset, a global organization focused on data and digital rights. Ben, thanks for being back on Big Tech. Pleasure to be here, Taylor. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the information control inside Russia, but first, how would you characterize the disinformation campaign outside of Russia? I think the first thing to point out is that a lot of it is not new. Russian state media have been successfully using major social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Telegram, TikTok, for a number of years. They have developed huge audiences all over the world, and in particular amongst Russian language speaking populations in Eastern Europe. Those channels have been pushing Russian state views on a variety of topics, including the conspiratorial and outright false ones. The companies have chosen for years not to do anything about that. They have chosen not to invest in any kind of product safety standards or, or ways in which to, to mitigate the effects of this kind of state-sponsored disinformation. So that was the status quo on the day the invasion started. What we then saw was a quick action by the European Union in particular, and an alliance with the United States and other governments, Canada among them, to impose sanctions on the Russians. And among those sanctions was the the blocking of russian state media and so you had 
RT and Sputnik geo-blocked, their broadcast licenses revoked, and those sites and their, their associated social media channels are no longer available inside the European Union. What happens next is the immediate proliferation of Kremlin-aligned content onto hundreds, if not thousands, of channels all over social media. Some of that is clearly orchestrated and directed by government-backed entities. Some of it is organic. It's people deciding they're going to redistribute similar content. There's no way to fully understand the scope of it unless you are one of those social media companies and you decide you want to document it. And to my knowledge, no one has done that. So what kinds of disinformation trends or types of content are you seeing? I mean, the most common ones are just amplifications of the, the position of the Russian government, which is that this conspiracy that, that somehow Ukraine, which, whose president is Jewish, is somehow a Nazi-controlled state and that they are persecuting ethnic Russians in Ukraine and therefore there is a justification for the invasion. Uh, a, a, a conspiracy rewriting history saying Ukraine never really existed as a real country and it was always a part of Russia and it's unacceptable that it is broken away and that it's moving towards the European Union or towards NATO. These kinds of things are widespread on all those channels. So effectively, the thing the European Union and its allies attempted to block with RT and Sputnik is pro just proliferated into thousands of other channels all over the internet. This might be difficult to answer at this stage, but I'm wondering how effective you think this has been. I mean, I think we've really propped up in many ways the power of the Russian state to divide Western societies and disinform us. But has it worked here? There's been an interesting little, an interesting phenomenon in the last two weeks where there's been a, a surge in social media content featuring. Ukrainian defenders, civilians, citizen soldiers, and military alike standing up in the face of an overwhelming uh, armed force of Russian invaders. And that inspiring uh, story has dominated social media in English in the West. Yeah. And so you can read stories about how, aha, you know, the Russian disinformation army is not all it's cracked up to be. We beat Putin. The Ukrainians are so clever. They were all over it. They put up their TikTok videos of, you know, standing in front of tanks. That's the story that's dominating the world. Well, if you read elite English language Twitter, yeah, we won. <laughs> Congratulations to us. But mm. that was never the target of the Russian disinformation operation. They were never going to persuade the, the West of their justification for the war, they were focused on those communities that they have been bombarding with propaganda for years, those communities that are most likely to be sympathetic to their cause. So if you look at what these digital media uh, narratives look like in Russian language, in Ukrainian, in Romanian, in the languages of the Baltic states, in the Balkans, there was a, pro, there was a march in Serbia uh, last week of, of pro-Russian uh, supporters. So the narratives in those countries are very different. And I think we need to assess very carefully whether or not we've really won the information war. I think not. I think that in, in those communities where it matters most, we have a lot more work to do and we have a lot to understand about even how this disinformation is operating. I wonder if even in our own conversations and kind of the Western democratic conversations, 
whether some of that victory, perceived victory in the information war was was premature. I mean, you now see the right, for example, elements of the right in the U.S., elements of the far right in Germany, now starting to coalesce around uh, a kind of <laughs> a more divisive message, right? And frankly, it's driven by a Russian narrative. I mean, that took them a bit of time, though, to, <laughs> to get there. Um, but they're there now, right? I think that's absolutely right. I think the Tucker Carlsonization of of the American right and with it parts of the Canadian right to this idea that what did the Russians ever do to us? We have no quarrel with them. This is none of our affair. In any way, it's it's nice to see a strong leader in action. That kind of rhetoric is is pervasive now amongst certain right wing social media groups. I think part of the reason it hasn't become dominant in the way that you've seen other conspiracy narratives balloon on right-wing social media is because there's a split on the right. There's a split between the traditional hawks and cold warriors of, of international militarism from those more isolationist far-right groups that have been sympathetic uh, to Putin and Putinism. But irrespective of what's happening in, in English language social media, I think we really have to be focused on what's happening in Eastern Europe right now, in particular. And if you look at they're, they're, they're the most prominent organizing feature of the conspiracy narratives right now is, is around the Z campaign. And you may be familiar with it and your listeners as well from seeing the Z written on Russian military vehicles and all the imagery from the invasion. And that Z is notable because Z is not a letter in the Cyrillic alphabet. That, that Z was some sort of military code. There are lots of theories about what it might be, but now it has become the, the unifying symbol of Russian nationalism and the distilled emblem of the conspiratorial narrative that Ukraine is run by Nazis and Russia is the heroic savior going in to, to, to rescue the ethnic Russians who are being persecuted. That Z campaign, if you look in Russian language social media, if you look in Eastern European language social media, it's everywhere. And it is ominous. I mean, it is, this is a pretty serious operation and one that I think we need to pay more attention to. Who's running it? Do we know? I think it's, it's a combination uh, of state-sponsored production. You can see it. I mean, these videos of, you know, 100 guys in Z t-shirts, black shirts with white Zs, chanting and waving Russian flags. That's not a flash mob. <laughs> that was that was organized. That was highly produced. That's an HD video camera in front of them. But you also see a ton of organic content. It, it's very reminiscent in a way of, of the, the growth of, of Q and, and the, the potency of, of a single symbol that gave people the sense of us versus them, a kind of tribal imagery that suggests that we have some secret truth that we're going to uh, deliver in, in a victorious march to some weird end of history distortion. And and allows people to read in any number of explanations into a single symbol, right? That can be pretty powerful. It can be galvanizing. You can imagine as well, there are a number of commentators in Eastern Europe who say, you know, we've seen a symbol like that before stamped on the side of military vehicles. And it was the greatest disaster the world has ever known. The other 
piece of this information ecosystem challenge we're facing right now is is the way information is being controlled inside Russia, which in some ways seems to have pretty radically different characteristics than the way information is flowing outside of it. Um, I wonder if you can speak a bit to how you might characterize what the average Russian citizen is seeing or has access to about the war at the moment. I can only speak to what is what is known, and, and I am not a Russia expert, but what I have seen over the years is lots of governments attempting to shut down access to external digital media channels, and that's what the Russians have done. They, they have passed a law saying if you even call it a war, it's a 15-year prison sentence, which has made every Western news organization immediately pull up all of its people and, and leave. All the, all the major news organizations are gone. You have seen the Russians move quickly to ban major social media platforms. Facebook is banned. Instagram is now banned. Twitter is banned. YouTube is interestingly still up. So is TikTok. But TikTok says that they're they're pausing on the upload of new videos inside of Russia because they're concerned about the safety of their users vis-a-vis this law. So there's a quickly a, a shrinking of the information market for sure. Like and 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 a an increasing reliance of russians on state media channels both television and and radio all the independent news organizations that were left in russia have been shut down that leaves open the question okay is it really a digital iron curtain or are people actually able to access this kind of information so you, you do see a lot of discussions about vpn access virtual private networks people using technology to essentially beam their computer into another country and access open media channels via those systems and then get the, the, the content back into Russia. So I think for those who know how to use those technologies, it's not hard to get access to information, but you have to want to do it. And if you're talking about mass public opinion, which is already highly conditioned, it's not surprising that you're seeing an alignment of the Russian public around the, the Putin government. Uh, and, and that's what the polling data suggests that has emerged out of the country, that he's got a lot of support and that viewpoints are hardening uh, as the battle lines are drawn. Yeah, and it, it, like it's not just the platforms too on the tech side. I've, I've heard that even things like Visa and MasterCard pulling out will make it even harder for people who are using VPNs to pay for them or hosting their own servers to keep those up or access cloud computing to get at that. I mean, we're really cutting off this country infrastructurally. There is a a kind of catch-22 of how do you impose sanctions in a way that is meaningful and painful enough to cause a response? How do you impose a, a controls on the spread of disinformation, conspiracy, and war propaganda that are being used as information weapons, while at the same time keeping open opportunities for people to get access to accurate information who are willing to seek it out or who are willing to listen if it finds them. That is a very significant problem and one that I think is not going to go away. There's going to continue to be a lot of tension there. I'm not sure that I I buy the idea that, oh, we can't we can't come down too hard in terms of, of communications technologies because then they'll ban the social media systems. Well, they're banning them anyway. And, you know, we can't, uh, we don't want to risk isolating the country into its own media bubble, but that's happening anyway. And so if we sort of 
project out a couple of weeks to where it's likely to be, then I think we have to ask the question, like, all right, how do we, how do we get people the information that they need if they're, if they're willing to seek it out? And that's, uh, that's not a new question. <laughs> well, it's one you've been involved with for 20 years, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, this has been the age old question of internet freedom, uh, since the beginning of the, of the web. And, you know, it's before that it was, it was about the cold war and, you know, lobbing radio transmissions over the iron curtain. And, you know, you, you read the historical accounts of the, of the, the pamphlet drops from balloons into the former Soviet union. So this is this problem of that information access is not a new one. We're just experiencing, we're experiencing it now in, in its 21st century incarnation. We said the same thing about other countries before, whether it was Syria or even mainland China, trying to encircle essentially their population and cut it off from the internet. Do you think Russia can actually do that? In short, no, they can't. The question is, can they do it enough so that they are able to contain dissent at a level that is low enough to punish it and threaten mm -hmm. it into silence? Yeah. And I think it's important to keep in mind that Russia is not exactly the most wired society in the world. And that what may be true of elites in Moscow and St. Petersburg is certainly not of people further out in the hinterlands in Russia. It's like that in Canada. It's like that in America, except much worse because the infrastructure is, is poorly developed. So I, don't, I think we, we overestimated our peril, the degree to which Russians in general were already online and consuming digital media in, in the way that has become standard in, in Western societies. So you've already got a big chunk of people who are habituated to traditional media sources and now state media is the only game in town. Those small number of people who are a accustomed to getting digital information and be willing to use circumvention applications like virtual private networks to access Western media, that's not going to be a very significant percentage of the overall public, even on the best of days. So I think they can't shut out Western information, but they may not need to have such a tight seal in order to maintain control over public opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of propaganda, I guess. You don't need everybody to believe it. You just need most people. <laughs> and their starting place was pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just like last question here. I mean, I, I think the thing that's changed in the last few years around the disinformation conversation, in part because of the work you've been doing, frankly, in your organization, is that governments have a very, uh, a much higher level of awareness of the nature of this problem. And I think... Western governments are very aware that there's this significant disinformation aspect of this war. Whereas 10 years ago, they might not have been as much. But they're now asking, like, what do we do about that? And I'm hearing this a lot of, like, how do we fight Russian disinformation in this war? And they're literally looking for answers. Do you, what are you telling governments right now on how they engage in this particular problem of Russian disinformation right now on Ukraine? I think there are are two complementary answers to that question. One is the short-term reduction of the quantity and influence of Russian conspiracy and propaganda coming over digital channels into Eastern Europe and into other vulnerable communities. The second piece of it is how do you get information into Russia to people who are willing and able to receive it? And those are two problems that are going to continue to be of urgent need over the, over the medium term. 
I think the most urgent priority now is how do we fight weapons of information warfare as societies that believe in freedom of expression? Mm. And, you know, but we're not talking about this in a vacuum. We're talking about this in a context of social media companies with global control over information distribution who have made clear policies about what kinds of content are permitted on their 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 platforms and what are not there are rules you cannot incite violence on on facebook you cannot uh talk about the extermination of a people on a youtube video and yet you know these things are happening every day all day long on these platforms why is that well it's partly because the companies were not prepared for this and they don't have the tools to impose the product safety standards that they might be able to do in the west but that's no excuse you know they got to get to it and and that's where government pressure i think can can really come into play but what that's going to leave you with are those channels that refuse to moderate or don't care and and that and and are outside the control of western government so what happens with telegram what happens with tiktok those are going to be interesting questions going forward like what did the chinese say about tiktok carrying videos encouraging the genocide of the ukrainian people where where will that come down in terms of TikTok's desire to be a credible commercial product in the United States in Western Europe versus uh, positioning geopolitically where the the Chinese state may or may not be? Those are be the questions that we need to be be tracking that governments need to be tracking. We need to keep ourselves very well informed. The last thing that I would mention that I think is an issue for everyone globally is. The ways in which Russian state media, when they are geo-blocked in the European Union, immediately amplified their efforts in other parts of the world. We saw a spike in the, the traffic and engagement figures for both RT and Sputnik in other parts of the world, in Latin America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia. You see the Russian embassies in all of these other countries becoming uh, very active uh, in communicating the message of the Russian government, their version of the war. So that these are important things to, to, to keep track of. And while those channels are hardly dominant or, or directive of local media markets, they are not without influence. All right, Ben. Thanks again, as always. Well, I hope next time under better circumstances, but uh, I'm glad this program's on the air. I mean, look, I'm in Montreal at the moment and watching everything going on in your part of the world closely, but from a real distance. And I, I'm wondering what it feels like in Berlin right now. Do you feel close to this? Like- I mean, the short answer is yes. The war in Ukraine feels incredibly close, I think, for a number of reasons. One is I'm based in Berlin. I think in the last three days alone, 20,000 mostly women and very young children arrived in Berlin Central train station. And you see them everywhere. There's people sobbing. There's people with bags, which is everything they have. So I think it's incredibly close. And then I think many people my age, we grew up with, with grandparents who were children in the war. So we're very familiar of stories, what it's like to be in a basement, hearing the sound of bombs and... We're having now conversations with our grandparents who really feel 
yeah, for, for them, it's also quite, yeah, it feels very close. I think that's a good, good answer. As Ben mentioned, there's a tension here in how the tech companies are responding to this crisis. On the one hand, sanctions need to be painful enough to be effective. But there's also a real risk that you might create an even deeper information vacuum. And that could end up hurting ordinary Russian citizens. I want to get a better sense of the trade-offs here. So I spoke with Federike Kalturner in Berlin, the head of the tech division of Human Rights Watch. I mean, it certainly seems from from a distance, seeing it on the platforms I use, that this is a place dominated by Ukrainian messaging, um, frankly, right? That that's what we're receiving largely in the West. But if you're trying to fact check potential acts of war or potential munitions being used, you're also coming up against the information being promoted by the Russian state and Russian actors and a whole host of other actors. So how do you view that mix of content that's circulating right now? I think what we've seen in the last two weeks has been quite interesting. Um, the I've seen lots of misinformation from all sides, and I think it's because things are moving very fast and it's incredibly yeah. emotional. Um, and it's just the context in which rumors spread and in which we sometimes on a very personal level need to believe certain things to be true, even though they're not. Maybe this sort of like the fact that we're so, it feels so close in Europe. It's really been, I've had conversations, I mean, overheard in a bar, people were quite scared the first two weeks. And that's sort of a context in which um, this is just a sort of a breeding ground for for rumors to spread. Do we want to believe that the war might be going better for Ukraine than it actually is? I mean, is that playing into some of this? This is like very much personal um, territory now. I think, I mean, it's interesting, no matter which political side you're on, in Mm. an election, I always think my side is winning. (laughs) And I do that because I, of course, move in an information bubble. I think the more deeper question is, what is the point of disinformation? It's not just to spread false facts, but it's to sow um, disagreement, polarization. So what does winning look like in this kind of context? When the goal is to make people be nihilistic, Mm. when the goal is to create divisiveness, Mm. what does winning look like? And I think at least in Europe initially, there was a lot more unity than anyone would have expected for all mm. sorts of reasons. Yeah. And it's interesting to observe in Germany, even the far right, which was very much um, involved in COVID disinformation, misinformation around vaccines, et cetera, because yeah. it was such a shell shock moment, people were very much aligned. And then suddenly the mood, I feel in the past week, the mood has shifted again, where um, there's now... I'm seeing much more spreading of like blatantly false uh, Russian mm. state propaganda by actors mm. within Europe. And I think we mm. have, I observed something similar during COVID. In the early, in the first three weeks, everyone was shell-shocked. Yeah. But for parties that are very populist, it takes a while to figure out... What the, the line's going to be, right? Yeah, Exactly. Also, like, figure out where's the wind going to blow from? Which, which direction should we turn? And so... Basically, my answer would be, I think we need to ask ourselves, what does winning look like? Winning does not mean that whatever your side is on spreads the most 
dominates the discussion. Winning should be something different. I think winning should mean that we still have a healthy space in which public discourse can happen. We have this perception of the Russian government as being very, I think, adept at at least fostering division and potential polarization and sort of inflaming discourses, whether it be through the American election and Trump or Brexit or right. Like you can imagine them coming into this conflict thinking that they were going to be able to divide Western societies through these similar tactics. But it seems to me they're that's one that didn't seem to work. And that maybe they the bar was actually much higher for them as they were actually trying to control everything we knew about this conflict. And that wasn't possible. I just wonder if they massively miscalculated here, the information ecosystem and their power in it. I just wanna add a careful warning that it's still very, it's still very early. Yeah. Um, hopefully, hopefully it isn't, but sadly it seems like, um, it seems to look like this, this is, this war is gonna, gonna last much longer. So we don't know. Yeah. We really don't know what's gonna happen. Um, yeah. Maybe then watching, yeah, watching the fragmentation happen and, and really asking ourselves, what's the goal of disinformation? If it's polarization, then we're now seeing the early signs of it. Yeah, and I wonder if this drags on longer um, and the attention sort of starts to move, um, whether that gets even worse, right? The risk of that polarization gets worse. So it's much easier to like focus all our attention on this very acute thing right now. But that doesn't last. You know. And this is where, where my sort of personal disillusionment with fact-checking comes from. It's not enough to fact-check. Yeah, the momentary stuff- fact-check doesn't matter, right? So, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it does and it doesn't, right? It's sort of, I, during the pandemic, I thought it was very helpful to see, to see warnings everywhere. Vaccines are very effective. Here's how you find good information. I think we shouldn't underestimate the importance yeah. of that. Um, but I had a moment, I think it was last week when I saw, I think the BBC was fact-checking the claim that the war is a hoax. <laughs> and I felt yeah. we're no longer in fact-checking territory. This is just pure, <laughs> I mean, bizarre nihilism. What is this? I think it's, this is not about fact-checking. This is almost flat earther kind of territory where you try to spread narratives that nothing matters, nothing is real, everyone is lying, you can't trust anyone. These are the narratives, I think, that are so hard to tackle. So I want to dig into the platform piece here. What does it mean for Russian citizens to not have access to these platforms from a human rights perspective? It's um, it's terrible, and it's... it's um, it really is, and we've seen this, and this has been documented for years by human rights organizations and digital rights organizations that work on Iran. So there are sanctions, and, and you can, can and I think should criticize sanctions and, and from a human rights perspective and critically assess whether they are disproportionate, whether they disproportionately affect ordinary citizens and their rights. But separate from this, there's the issue that there are also, there's a tendency sometimes of companies to overcomply with sanctions. So there is a fine line between taking legitimate, necessary steps to counter disinformation um, 
And then there is also limitations of freedom of expression that are quite problematic. So we've, we've seen lots of demands to shut down the Russian internet, to boycott the ability of Russian citizens to get information. And that's, of course, hugely problematic from a human rights perspective. There's still a lot of confusion as to as to what is an appropriate response. So, and it's not just platforms, right? It's like ISP providers, it's Visa and MasterCard. So if this drags on, we could see a real shutdown of access to digital technologies, right, in, in Russia? Exactly. And I think this isn't sort of, this isn't the most pressing issue now, but what we're seeing currently is that tech companies are infrastructure. They have become critical infrastructure in so many different ways. In this particular instance, it makes sanctions very effective. It also potentially makes them um, incredible problematic. But at the same time, I think the broader long-term question is it's a it's a really important reminder how we're all dependent on these infrastructures. These companies can also just make decisions to turn off an entire market at any point in time. They wouldn't under normal circumstances for profit reasons, but I think it's a very important reminder how vulnerable we all are. Absolutely. And, and you hear this with sort of companies deciding to operate in China or not. I mean, obviously, this is a much more acute situation in Russia, but that is a similar dilemma, right? To what degree does some access to these technologies provide a meaningful access to information that maybe overrides the way they're being limited or potentially targeted even using those same technologies. And I'm wondering how you view the Russian case right now from that human rights perspective. Basically, so companies have a responsibility to respect human rights and to remedy abuses. And they are required to avoid infringing on human rights and to take steps to address adverse human rights impacts. Sounds very technical, but it's always, I think, important to go back. What are the actual responsibilities that companies have? What we found difficult in assessing is that, for example, the way that companies are tackling disinformation hasn't always been, it's very difficult to follow in real time the effectiveness of the decisions taken. And in response to this, it's very difficult for us to fully assess whether they are meeting their human rights responsibilities. Even sort of on issues such as uh, taking down accounts, geo-blocking stated media, uh, removing or demoting content, all of this has implications for freedom of expression. And all of this is done in ways that are incredibly opaque. Um, and the reason why it's so important to measure this is we, we want to avoid that things are arbitrary, biased, or selective. And this is why all of the decisions that are taken should really be based on clear rules. Do you worry that, I mean, Russia's in the past expressed sort of desires of having a much more isolated internet um, in some of the ways that the Chinese internet functions. Do you worry we're, this is speeding up that splintering of the internet? It's fascinating to see some of the decisions that companies have taken are very much, seem to be very much in line with what the Russian government seemed to be intending to do. Why do you think platforms are going along with that then, if it seems does seem aligned with? I don't know. Yeah. I, there, there, there is, I mean, there are sanctions. We, I haven't analyzed this systematically. Yeah. Whether this is sort of complying with sanctions or over-compliant. Um, we, Human Rights Watch, we signed onto a letter addressed to the Biden administration to really urge there to be exceptions um, within the sanctions, similar to the exceptions that exist in the case of Iran for precisely these reasons. Um, 
Also concerns, I mean, it's really difficult. The concerns, safety of staff, it's really good. It is incredibly complex. Um, yeah. But basically, I think to bring it down to the most basic level, it's really important that people everywhere keep connected to the internet and are able to, to access independent and free information. So Human Rights Watch works in conflicts around the world. And we've obviously seen platforms and the way they react to and moderate or not content in previous conflicts over the past decade, um, playing a pretty instrumental role. And it seems they're taking a much more active view on this one. We could imagine all sorts of reasons why. Um, but I, I'm wondering how you look at this particular conflict and how these companies have reacted compared to the others we've seen and and your organization has been involved in in Ethiopia, in Syria, in Myanmar. I mean, there's been a very different reaction from platforms in those in those contexts. My first impression was this is a lot of action, and we have not seen the same kind of responsiveness in other conflicts. When we looked at the actions taken more closely, maybe the speed at which they were announced is is unprecedented, but the content itself really isn't. And we sort of mapped and saw sort of like some examples of actions taken. So I think a very simple example is after the um, the US, US military left Afghanistan, companies set up sort of tools for people to secure their accounts in a, in a, in a rapidly changing security context. We've also seen task force uh, similar to the ones in Ukraine, but it's true that what we haven't seen um, is the sort of like the speediness of the decisions in which they were announced. And um, it's really important to mention there are lots of conflicts and wars and very fragile situations around the world currently to which companies aren't adequately responding. I mean, it's positive that these decisions are taking. At the same time, we want them to be consistent and not just ad hoc. Um, so yes, it's good that action is being taken. But there are many questions about whether enough decisions have been taken previously. Since at least 2014, the Ukrainian government has urged platforms to do more. A key demand has been to have local offices for companies, that can be a bit of a tricky issue because it sometimes means that it puts your staff in danger. It, it also makes you susceptible to government overreach. But that being said, of course, content moderation and tackling disinformation is so complex and requires so much nuance that you need more than people who speak the language. You need people who are very attuned to the local context. So that's a demand that's been raised since 2014 and um, has never really been responded to. This war didn't come out of nowhere. There was a long built-up and there was a context. Um, it's, it's difficult to do this now in this sort of rapid response mode, but it would be really, really important to really thoroughly investigate that. It's so incredibly complex. And, and I would say it's just a lot of responsibility for a private company to be running the infrastructure on which public discourse runs. That's a lot of responsibility and maybe too much responsibility for, for a private company. But perhaps that's one of the responsibilities that comes with operating at scale globally. No, absolutely. I would say it's a cost of doing business and it's a cost that for, yes, there are signs that it's changing, but it's a cost of doing business that for a long time just wasn't factored in. Those were my conversations with Ben Scott, 
and Federique Kalturner. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week.